The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Remain standing with me this morning in reverence of the reading of the Holy Word of God. This morning we'll be reading John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. First Baptist Church of Crosby, would you hear the word of the Lord? So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they had believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord. Father, your people, we wait to hear your voice. So, Father, we pray that you would, by your spirit, give us ears to hear more than just the words of a preacher, the words of our Father speaking comfort and peace, assurance. Words of love from a father who has bought us at a great price. So, Father, we ask that you would do this now for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you're able, please stand one more time. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We continue working verse by verse. We're coming to the end of this second chapter. I'm, I'm going to miss it. I don't know that you all feel the same, but. It's going to be a sad day when we conclude this chapter for me. This is the holy, inerrant, infallible, sufficient word of God. Beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. And again, all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Our focus this morning is going to be on chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 19. Paul says, so then we are no longer strangers and aliens. Your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We must always pick these verses up in, in context and understanding the flow of what Paul has been laying out for us is a means of assurance. He's called us to remember. Remember your pitiful estate. 
Remember your once hopelessness and absence from God. And in verse 13, the whole thing changes. But now in Christ Jesus, reminding us of what we read in verse four of chapter two, that but God statement. Everything changes when you hear the but God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were far, you were distant, you were hopeless and without God. But through the blood of Christ, you now come near. Verses 14 to 18, then he tells us how that nearness has been accomplished. What all is wrapped up in this idea of coming near by the blood of Christ? How God has accomplished not only our redemption, but our access to him through his son and by his spirit. And now as we come to verses 19 to 22, he expounds upon this teaching. He shows us just not only how near we have come to God, but who we are in this people that have been brought near to him. What Christ is doing here is he's showing us that he came not only to redeem that which was lost or to, to reconcile that which was broken, but to elevate and increase the entire thing. Further up and further in, the steel line from C.S. Lewis. To bring us into a deeper communion with God than we could have ever imagined. All, all the promises of the Old Testament finding their fulfillment in him. Now finding their true and ultimate fulfillment in this people called the church making clear that his goal, the coming of Christ Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit, it wasn't just to take a bunch of hopeless Gentiles and make them into a bunch of hopeful Jews, but to bring us into a family, to bring us into the very presence of God as one singular people. That's what he says, creating in Christ Jesus one new man, a new humanity. That's the theme for this whole section. It's a new humanity that he is building. A people who are bound together by more than just nationality or common interest. Bound together as one people. With the same spirit of life flowing all throughout us. With the same spiritual head being Christ Jesus. Able then to call God our Father. But again, we must remember the, the focus here. The whole purpose to this section. If you look. Now these headings that you have in your Bible, they're not... Inerrant, they're not authoritative, they're not written there by God, but they can be helpful. And if you go to chapter, excuse me, verse 11, you probably have something like one in Christ written there. That's the theme for this whole section. It's how God has taken two. He has taken many, in fact, and he has made us all one. Of course, he regenerates individual people. He calls you exactly where you are one at a time, but he's calling you into something much larger than yourself. He's calling you into this singular people. That's what he's doing. He's building, building a people. And so what the Apostle Paul is going to do here in verse 19 down through verse 22 is he's going to give us four magnificent pictures. Who is this people that God is building? So he's already talked to us about the fact we look up in chapter one, verse 23, that we are the body of Christ. When we come to chapter four, he's going to make clear that not only are we the body of Christ, but we can also be thought of as the very bride of Christ. But now in these verses that we've just read together, we'll see that we are citizens of a city or a nation or a kingdom, that we are members of a family, that we are parts of a house. And then the real crescendo of the whole thing is that we are a dwelling place for God. That's where this thing is headed. I don't know if it takes me two weeks, three weeks, four weeks to get there, but you must always have this at the end of the line. The purpose for what God is doing in this place and amongst this people, he is building for himself a dwelling place, a holy temple for the spirit of God. So this is ecclesiology. This is a doctrine of the church, a teaching of the church. Now, as you might imagine, this is a, it's a topic very precious to me. I love the church. I love this church. But lest you get it confused into thinking, well, of course he loves the church. He's a pastor. He's been called and set apart by God to feed the sheep, to shepherd the flock, to take care of those that God has bought for himself. So lest you think that I love the church because it is my job, I would remind you that for 20 years I loved this church. You have always been my people. Much more so even than my extended family at times. 
this people that God is building, you have loved me well. We've done life together. I believe that what God has done in the 15 or however many years it was that I was in this place before I came to be your pastor is he was binding my heart to you. He was showing me what the church was. He was making sure that when the day came that my paycheck came from the church, I already loved the people as my own. I already loved them like a family. I already saw them for what they were. So I praise God for this. Look, if I had it to do over again, would I have come straight out of college and gone straight to seminary? Maybe, but it would have been different. Do you see? So I praise God for his providential hand in bringing me into union with you people and then allowing me to love you in the way that I'm able to now love you. But the reality is, as much as I loved you, I didn't always understand you. I didn't always know what the church is. What is God doing here in this gathered people that I find myself enthralled with? I submit to you that in the modern American evangelical church, there's much confusion at this point right here. Now, you go talk to almost any, you go talk to almost any professing believer and, and they will immediately tell you, look, the church is a people, not a place. Almost everybody understands that, right? Like this place isn't the church. This place is the place that the church comes together. We all get that. But then press a little deeper and say, okay, but who's those people? Who's in and who's out? Why are they gathered together? What's their purpose in coming together? Because the reality is there's all kinds of groups of people that gather all over the world. That doesn't make them a church. So what is the people that God is gathering together in this particular place. What is the church? Again, I submit to you that a faulty and weak and unbiblical understanding of this doctrine right here it has led to many disgruntled congregations and discouraged pastors. It's led to much of the church shopping that we find so common today. People not viewing the church as their family, but when this church doesn't meet up to their ideals, their expectations, because what the world has been taught to do is to compare this body to all the other bodies out there. Well, beloved, there is no perfect body, not this side of heaven. And so it's, it, it's built in this, this confusion and this frustration and this hurt and this doubt about, are, are we even doing the right things? What's God doing here? Are we even pleasing him with our lives? Or are we just playing church? So this is an important thing important question that's before us. So we're going to ask some questions. What is this thing called the church comprised of? Who builds the church? How is it built? Who does it belong to? And what is her purpose? And the Apostle Paul is going to answer this and much more in just these four short verses body of Christ, the bride of Christ, citizens of the kingdom, a family of God, a house, and a very temple for God himself. Now, one of the rules that I've found to be true in my study of scripture is that the greater variety of words or pictures that the author uses to express something, the more important that thing is. The, the more room there is for confusion, and yet the greater desire that God has that we see it clearly. Look, if a thing isn't important to me, I'm fine with you walking away confused about it. But if it's precious, I'm going to help you to see it from every angle possible, trying to drill down on the truth of what is it. So look with me at verse 19. He says, so then. So then just ties us. These, these connecting words, they are so critical as we read the scripture. So then. Because of everything that has just come before. Because everything we've taken so much time building on and considering and praying over together. So then, because of all we've studied together, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Those words sound familiar? Just go up your page a bit to chapter, uh, verse 2. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. He says you were once strangers. The Greek word there is xenos. It's where we get our word xenophobia from. Y'all know that word? 
Xenophobia, most people we hear that and we immediately think that it means racism or the hatred of somebody from another country. And that's close, that can be a form of xenophobia, but xenophobia is the fear or hatred of that which is different or strange. Now, any of you that have ever spent any time overseas or in a, in a foreign land, or maybe if you've gone just even up north in this country, you know what it's like to be a stranger, to be different. You don't talk, you don't walk like everyone else. You don't like the same food, you don't like the same music. You don't have the same heritage, you don't value the same things. You don't get their jokes and you don't understand the things that they refer to. That's what it means to be a stranger, to be strange. And we know that the people of God were called to be a very peculiar people. Going back to the Old Testament, there was some very clear outward signs. We've talked about much of that with regards to the Jew and the Gentile. There was some outward weirdness, the foods that they could eat, the ways that they washed themselves, just, just the overall conduct of day-to-day -day life. It was different. It set them apart as strange from the rest of the world. Now, the text has made clear that in Christ Jesus, this dividing wall has come down. But it doesn't mean that we're not called to be a strange people. The people of God will always stand apart. They'll always be strange. That's why Paul will say in Ephesians 4.17 that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Again, he's not making a differentiation between Jews and Gentiles within the church. He's just saying like the rest of the world. As those who have come to Christ, we're different. And we're weird and we're strange. Paul is saying that we were once strangers. That everything that was of God was strange and different and unfamiliar and unknown. We were nothing like the people of God. But he goes on to say that that's no longer true. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens is another word. And I think alien is something different. In some of your Bibles, if you're not reading from the ESV, it may say the word sojourner. You know what that word means? It, it, it means a... Someone that lives in the land and yet is a foreigner. It's a resident foreigner. It's someone who lives in a land around, amongst a certain people. He's in a certain land amongst these certain people, the, the citizens of that land. He is, in many ways, he's blended in with them. Now, now, Paul may be using these words synonymously, but it seems to me that he's trying to draw this definition from you were a stranger and a foreigner and unknown to the people, and now you've come near. There, there's this still alienation that can come even from those that come near to the people of God. That unlike a stranger who knows nothing of the customs or the language or the desires, you've developed those same tastes. And you know that that happens. As, as you go away for a while, let's say that God calls you away and you live for years, maybe even just months in a foreign land, your accent can even change. The kind of foods that you like, the jokes that you understand, the, the songs that you listen to. You may even forget for a moment that you're not a citizen of that land. They may forget the people you meet on the street. They may not know that you're not a citizen of that land. So it seems to me that this is what he's talking about. That an alien is not a citizen. That while you may look and speak and act and joke and sing and value the same things as the citizens, you're still a foreigner. That there are certain rights even certain responsibilities of the citizens that don't fall on you. And if the day ever comes that a war breaks out or some kind of significant conflict of any kind, if this alien is pushed to pick a side, you'll find very quickly that he's going to side with his motherland. He's going to side with the people that he belongs to, to the place where his citizenship lies. He's saying, so then you are no longer strangers. That the things of God are no longer odd to you. They're familiar and they're comfortable. But he says more than that, you're not just a person that's comfortable around the people of God. You belong. You're a fellow citizen. You're not one that just talks like the people. You're not one that just sings the songs and knows the lingo. That you're a fellow citizen with the saints. He's saying you're no longer an outsider. You're a full citizen. A fellow citizen with full rights and full responsibilities. But you again must see here that what he says, he does not say that you are fellow citizens with the Israelites. He doesn't say you're fellow citizens with the Romans or any other country. He says that you are fellow citizens with the saints. All talk of Jews and Gentiles, that's gone. 
All concern for specific country of origin or nationality, that's gone. He says that we are fellow citizens with the saints. Now, you know that saints are the holy ones, the holy ones of God. That's how Paul began his letter, wasn't it? That he's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, saints or being holy, this isn't restricted. You all know this by now. It's not restricted just to the manner of life. Although a true saint will walk in a way that is holy and set apart and, and righteous before God. But that more than this, what, the, and what Paul wants to draw our heart to is the idea that we have been called by God out of the world and unto himself. We've been set apart unto God. We're the saints. Chosen by him before the foundation of the world. Set apart from everything that is unclean. And again, called out unto him. So we see perhaps the first the first question answered here, what is the true church composed of? Who are the rightful citizens of this city or this nation or this kingdom of God? It's the saints, both the saints in the Old Testament and the saints in the New. We've seen this as we looked at Hebrews chapter 11. We talked about all those saints of old, all the Old Testament heroes of the faith. The author of Hebrews has made clear that they are not complete without us. That while they have finished their own earthly race, they stand there rooting and cheering and watching and standing as, a, as an evidence of God's grace and endurance before us. So that we are one with them and they are one with us. We are fellow citizens with the saints, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, and the saints yet to come. We're fellow citizens with them all. Do you know this? Peter and Paul and James and John, you are fellow citizens with them, having the same rights and the same responsibilities. They have no greater access to the Father than you do, save and accept the fact that they have now been set free from this life of sin. You're fellow citizens with the saints. Now you must understand, though, that just as there can be resident aliens living in a land, just as there could be people who live in a land and walk and talk and live just like the citizens yet are not, yet will prove when the time comes where their loyalty lies. This is also the case within the church. Until Christ Jesus comes back, until the church is once and for all perfected, there will always be those aliens living even amongst the church. This is the concept of the visible and the invisible church. You've probably heard these terms before. But in short, what it means is, I can't see, nor can you see, the hearts of men. We don't bear some external mark of election. We can't see regeneration in real time as it takes place. These things are invisible. So that whenever a man or a woman or a child comes to us and, and they make a profession of faith, they call on Christ Jesus as Lord, and we don't see any outward obvious signs that this isn't true, then we take that profession and we rejoice. We receive them into the visible church. We receive them into the company of the saints. We talk to them as saints. Side note, I digress for one moment. As we, have, we have come as a faith family to really wrestle with the doctrines of grace. With the whole, whole idea of the necessity of God to choose those who are his before the foundation of the world. The necessity of the Holy Spirit to come and change a heart. If a man is ever going to call on Jesus Christ as Lord, for some parents I've heard it made it very difficult for them to know, how do I speak to my kids? Beloved, you speak to them like Christians. God's got to do the work in their heart. But we don't do our children any favors by talking to them like they're on the outside when God has been so gracious as to bring them into the inside. We don't know what's going on in the invisible but we look to them and it is okay for your little child who has not yet shown any fruit of salvation to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. To sing, I'm so glad I belong to the family of God. What foolishness would it be of us to put unnecessary doubt into the minds of our little children? You treat them as the saints. You treat them. Now, you, you, you preach to them the need of repentance and you bring the gospel before their eyes and you pray like crazy. The God of the universe would send his Holy Spirit to save them. But this is the picture that he's painting here. And we realize that because we can't see the hearts of men, there will always be those who are deceived inside the church. Because they walk and talk and speak and do all the outward things, they don't know they're aliens, they think they're citizens. There may be some that know deep down they don't belong, but for whatever reason they carry on. 
As I was thinking about this, it reminded me, have you ever seen that Steve Buscemi meme where it says, hello, fellow kids? It's like a grown man dressed like a kid. I feel like some people, they show up with a Bible in their hand, they go, hello, fellow Christians. There'll always be some of that till the day that Christ Jesus comes back. People who sing our songs and pledge allegiance to King Jesus. People who give their time to come into this place. People who swear by the word of God that this is the pattern for their life when in reality they're aliens and they're sojourners. So you must see this, that the kingdom of God of which Paul speaks, it is not synonymous with the church. It's not synonymous with church membership, I should say. It is synonymous with the church, with the global church, the invisible church, the true church of God. But it's not synonymous with church membership. To borrow a phrase from Paul, not all who come to the church are the church. Not all who hold membership in the church are the church. But at the same time, you've got to see the ditch on the other side. This does not mean that God has no use for the visible church. Sadly, that's where so many people have landed. But because belonging to this family, because being a citizen in the kingdom of God does carry with it responsibilities and requirements, it's costly at times. And because of the fact that the church isn't perfect, because it won't be perfect this side of heaven, because it's exactly as Christ said it would be, because it can be messy and it can be hard and even hurtful and confusing at times. So many people have pulled away and they say, well, I just belong to the invisible church. I don't belong to the visible, local, gathered congregation. I don't, I don't belong to some local church. I belong to the invisible church. And what I want to say is, yeah, you're invisible. That this is the place that the true church gathers. Not just this place, but places like this. All throughout the earth, in caves and in homes and in strip centers, in parks. But it is within the visible church that the invisible church gathers. It is through the ministry of the visible church that the citizens come in. Do you understand? The ministry of the word, the teaching of the word, the observance of the sacraments, the prayer, the evangelism, the exhortation, the encouragement. And, and Paul makes clear here, lest we think he's only talking about the global church, that these things that he's about to say, lest we think that these things about being citizens in a kingdom or members of the house or the holy temple of God, Lest we think that he's only talking about the, the global invisible church. When we get to verse 22, he says, in him you also. He's talking to that local church. You can pretty much throw out all of the New Testament if we're not dealing with a local gathered body. Almost everything that's written in any of the epistles, it's written to a gathered people. To a people who do the one another's together. To the people who see each other face to face and walk together through this life. So he's saying to the church who is in Ephesus and to the church who is gathered at First Baptist Church of Crosby. What is true of the church as it is spread out across all generations, across all countries, it is true of each true gathered congregation. We must not allow this to become so mystic and invisible that we don't see the tangible reality of it right before our eyes. The whole of the New Testament, you'll notice it operates with the assumption that the invisible church, the true saints of God, the real citizens of this kingdom, they will do everything necessary. They will give their very life, if necessary, that they can gather with the visible church. They will give their lives to congregate, to meet together with the church. In the words of John Calvin, the purpose of the church is to make the invisible kingdom of God visible. We gather together as a visible representation of that which is invisible. Giving sight and sound and smell and taste and touch to the invisible kingdom of God. Manifesting that to the world. So we gather together. We gather together and we help each other. We remind each other. What did we read in Hebrews 10, 24 to 25? What's the purpose to gathering together? So I have somebody to talk to? So I have an audience for this pretty speech that I write each week. No, he says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day of our Lord drawing, excuse me, the day drawing near. What is the day? The day of our Lord. 
When King Jesus returns, we see that day coming. It's one day sooner than it was yesterday. And as we see that day drawing near, it is all the more important that the people of God gather together and exhort and encourage and spur one another on. But again, I say the problem is that it's very easy for me to love Abraham or Moses or Peter or James or John. It's very easy for me to love because they've never offended me. It's never easy for me to love the saints of Ecuador or Zambia. But the people that live in Crosby, Texas, the people I actually have to see, the people I rely on for things, the people that I am meant to show up for, we hurt each other. I've offended you and you've offended me at times. I've let you down and you've let me down at times. You've seen me at my worst and I've seen some of you at your worst. And so it's a whole lot easier to love this invisible church, this idea of what a church should have been. Beloved, Go back and read Paul's letters. Go read his letter to the Corinthians, especially. They weren't perfect. They had some really yucky stuff going on. But they were the true citizens. Citizens of the kingdom of God. And so it takes a supernatural work from God to bind our hearts to a broken and busted people like this. People like ourselves. It takes a supernatural work of God. He has to give us a heart of flesh. That's why the Apostle John says, 1 John 3, 14... We know that we have passed out of death and into life. What's one of the ways that you know that you have this eternal life? What is one of the ways that you know that you have passed from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light? Because we love the brothers. You love unlovely people. Why? Because they're fellow citizens. Because they're members of your family. Because we are one. You love them. 1 John 2.19 says that they went out from us. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. Now listen to me very clearly. I'm not saying that everybody that leaves this congregation is not a Christian. There will certainly be some who will prove that their allegiance to Christ Jesus was only at a certain uh, surface level. If they pull away from the church and never gather again with the church. But he's saying here that these people who have gone out who have forsaken the assembly, who have forsaken the gathering together, who have forsaken Christ Jesus as their one head. He says they proved that they were never really of us. They were aliens because they went out from us. There was a visible sign of an inward reality. You see it? That they're pulling away from the people of God showed that their hearts were never really bound to them. And so we know it takes the supernatural work of God to make this happen. In the parallel to this morning's verse in Colossians, Colossians 1.12, we read this. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. It takes the work of God to move a man from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But who is the king in this kingdom? His beloved Son. The one who has purchased our citizenship. The one who has risen in glory. The one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning over heaven and earth and visible and invisible and rulers and powers and dominions. And every other name that can be named, it is only Christ Jesus who reigns. That's what he has done. And so we see our first picture, I think. What is the church? It is the saints throughout all generation and in every nation called out of the world while gathering together with fellow citizens of the same kingdom, we gather together under the rule and the reign of Christ Jesus. But lest we think this is a political rally, we must remember where this thing is headed, a temple of God. We don't just gather to sing praises to God. We gather to sing praises to King Jesus in his presence. That's the picture. Do you appreciate the thought of this? Does this cause your heart to leap? The fact that you are brought from strangers and aliens to full citizenship? With Christ Jesus reigning as your king, offering all that he is on your behalf, a good king, a righteous king, a faithful king. Do you rejoice at this? When you hear the words of Peter in 1 Peter 2.10, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You were not a people at all, but now you are my people. Now, unless you've lived as an alien or a stranger or a foreigner for any extended period of time, you maybe cannot appreciate this. 
It's an invisible thing that you may not have even been aware of at that moment. But I want to take you back to the very beginning. You see, when I say that Christ Jesus reigns from on high, we must not believe for one second that that means that the Son of God has not always been reigning. That God is the creator and sustainer of everything that is. He is king of all. And in his creation of the first two people, a man and a woman, he expressed to them, I've given you every good thing. I am a good king. I'm a king who comes into your presence. And for your good and for my glory, I'm giving you this one commandment. Don't reach out your hand and take of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you do, you will die. But we know that sometime previous to this, there had been a rebellion in heaven. One of his holy angels had led other holy angels in rebellion. They didn't want God as king. So they had fallen. And then the prince of the demons, Satan himself, came in the form of a servant. serpent. And what was his lie? You can break free from the reign of this oppressive king. And Adam and Eve, they joined him in this rebellion. We, we see it right from the very beginning. That's what it is. It's rebellion against our true and righteous king. We see the outflow of this as we come just one generation later to Cain, the son of this man and this woman. And what does he do? He takes the life of his brother, Abel. He kills him as a representative of those who have joined the citizenry of the serpent. Those who are the seed of the serpent, the kingdoms of man, the kingdom of darkness. This man who is the epitome of that, Cain, he takes the life of his brother. God curses Cain. Then we read this in Genesis 4, beginning in verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. He says, you made me a fugitive and a wanderer and a stranger in the land. But what's his concern? What was Cain's concern? Is it God, I don't live under your blessing any longer? Is it God, I want to make right with you? Is it God, I don't want to be in this kingdom of darkness. I want to be in your kingdom. It's no, but I'm going to die by myself. So God puts a mark on the man that his life may be spared, but he is driven away from the presence of God. He's a fugitive and a wanderer and a man without a home. We read then that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. You know what Nod means? Wandering. He was a wanderer, aimless and homeless. That's who we once were. Maybe just like Cain, much more worried about our physical care some sense of society and belonging than we were about being in the presence of God. And we see that even as Cain builds this first city, the first city of man that comes together, and he enjoys all this advancement and all this technology, still he's separated from God. Go home today and read Genesis chapter 4, that section especially about what happens with Cain after he leaves the presence of God. He builds a city and names it after his son, Enoch. I'll build a monument to myself. I'll build a place of refuge for myself. And then you travel along and then you get to a man called Lamech that is, again, a seed of the serpent. He's a violent man. He's a boasting man. He's a polygamist of a man. And he has children. And one of those is called Jabal. And he's the father of those who build tents and raise livestock. He's got a brother called Jubal, who is the father of those who play the harp and the lyre. Then we get to Tubal Cain, who forged instruments with bronze and iron. You see all the advancements. You see all the grace of God that made this a livable place and a happy place and a comfortable place. And yet all of them separated from God. Feeling very much at home in the world, but aliens and strangers from God. And we see this theme coming all throughout the Old Testament. I want you to think about what is the greatest, as best I can tell, what is the greatest construction project with the greatest manpower in the history of the world? Tower of Babel. Rebellion against God as our king. What was the most well-attended worship service in the history of the world? Israel gathered at the base of Mount Sinai worshiping a cow and calling it God. There was so much 
excitement and so much revelry. And there, there was a spirit that just moved throughout this. It wasn't the spirit of God, but there was a spirit that moved without this, throughout this worship service. All the external signs of civilization and happiness and provision and everything that our little fleshly hearts could desire, they had it in rebellion against God. They were cut off from him. Outsiders to the kingdom. Now I want you to compare this with God's dealing with his people. I want you to go back to the story of Father Abraham. By many accounts, many people assume that Abraham or Abram at the time was maybe the richest man on the earth in that moment. Very content and happy in a place that he called home. And yet what did God do? He called him to a strange and foreign land. Would he believe these promises of God? Fast forward and you come to Moses and this family has now become a great nation and they're enslaved in another land, just as God told Abraham they would be. They're enslaved in another land, but there's stuff there. We see this in the difficulty that the Israelites have as they look back to Egypt. A civilization surely much more advanced than the city of Enoch. They were surely quite comfortable there. And yet what happens? God comes and he calls them. He redeems them from this place, from this city of man. And he says, I'm calling you into the wilderness, into the unknown to come out and worship me. You don't belong to this people. You don't belong to this city. You don't belong to this nation. You belong to me. And so we immediately begin to see that this kingdom, it's not the invention of man. Everything that man invents is wretched. Everything that man produces is contrary to God. But when God builds, it is his kingdom. Even though the cities of man and the nations of this world may live very much under the blessing of God. With all manner of popularity, all manner of invention, all manner of resources, all from the hand of God. He is just feeding them and handing them over more and more and more of the poison that will lead to their damnation. But for the people of God, he calls us out of these cities, out of these man-made things, and into the unknown with himself. So we know that he had called his people to come into the wilderness that they would worship him. And he had made a promise, I will make you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation unto me. You will be my people and I will be your God. And he promised them a better city. A land flowing with milk and honey, a place of real rest. Again, with him as their king. Not some Pharaoh that needed their labor, not some harsh taskmaster, but a God who provides a king who comes near that doesn't sit up in some lofty throne, some lofty temple far away, but it comes near and dwells with them and travels with them and provides for their every need, even in that time of the wilderness. He protects them in every way. How many times did God go before them like a good king in battle? Proving that all the victory and all the protection they needed came from him. This was, of course, more than a picture of an earthly kingdom. This is a picture of the kingdom of God. The invisible kingdom. So would the people of God believe? Would they trust in the promises of God? Well, we see the sin of the first generation. They wouldn't. They wouldn't continue to carry on. Instead, their hearts were already always drawn back to that former city. To the kingdoms of man. Yeah, we were slaves there, but we were comfortable. Yeah, we were slaves there, but it was a whole lot safer. Yeah, we were slaves there, but man, it felt like home. He says, no, I've called you out to myself, and they would not go. So the man, they died. They died having not taken hold of this promised land. And what a tragic thing, isn't it? You can't go back to Egypt, and you don't take hold of the promised land, so you die in the wilderness, in the land of the in-between. But we know that that wasn't the case for all, not for the true saints of God. The Old Testament church for the, the citizens of this kingdom, this invisible kingdom. We know that they did carry on. Going back to Hebrews 11, we read about Abraham, that he left his family's land and he left all of that, that he may come and dwell in foreign lands and tents. We read that he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He says there's a better city ahead. It's not the city that my family and I might have built. It's a city of God. And that city, even though I can't see it from here, I trust the voice of my king. 
I trust the, God, the voice of the one who calls me, and therefore I go knowing there's a city, and the builder of this city is God. We read the same thing about Moses. Moses eleven twenty four that by faith Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. If there was anyone that ever felt comfortable in the city of man, wouldn't it have been Moses? Living in the household of God, of Pharaoh. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to a reward. So by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He said to Pharaoh, I'm not afraid of you, king. You may be king of all the cities of man. You may be king of all the earthly nations. You may be king of the physical earth, but I fear the invisible king. I trust the promises of the king that you've not seen. And so I leave and I follow him. And we read this. Speaking of all the company of the saints, Hebrews eleven thirteen, These all died in faith, having not received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And we see immediate pictures of this in Abraham. Abraham, what, how much of the land of Canaan did Abraham own? One plot for his burial. How much of a foot did Moses step into the promised land? He got it to go up onto a mountain and look into it. And he says they'd seen it and greeted it from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of a land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to listen Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, even though we live in a more privileged time, having seen the things that were promised, they only could see from afar, having seen Christ Jesus come and fulfilling everything that God had promised in the Old Testament. All his covenants coming to fruition in this one Christ Jesus. We still find ourselves in a position much like these men as sojourners and aliens with earthly kings and earthly pleasures and earthly promises and earthly lands all laid out before us. The question is, will we believe the voice of the king, the true king, the invisible king, the eternal king that calls us to himself? Do we believe that there's a heavenly city, something better? Will we stop settling, stop settling for the things of this world, the fleeting pleasures of sin? We look forward to a greater promise. Now, these saints, as he says, they could have turned back at any moment. If they would have turned back, though, they would have shown that what they desire isn't the promises of God, but just a better earthly city. And how many people live like that? All we're doing is trading up one city, one civilization, one nation, one earthly kingdom for the next, thinking that somehow if we get with the right group of man-made people, then I'm going to be satisfied. If they could have found this back in Egypt, or if they could have found it in any other city made by men, they would have gone there. But they knew that this city only rested with their king. So they followed his voice. They didn't turn back. And because of this, they found themselves as strangers and aliens on this earth. And that's the description of us as well. First Peter 2.11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passion of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. We are strangers and aliens and exiles in every other country. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Beloved, there can be no dual citizenship in this kingdom. Do you understand this? You either belong to the kingdom of God or you belong to the kingdoms of this world. You can't split time. You can't split citizenship. That's why Christ says, do not love this world. For this world is passing away. So don't allow your hearts to get entangled with the things of this world. That's easy to do. We find ourselves reliant upon the princes of this world. Comfortable with the promises of this world. He says, don't do it. You must choose here and now. Will you be an alien and a stranger and an exile from my kingdom? Or from the kingdom of this world? You can't have both. And the true saints of God, the church of Christ, they are those who recognize that their home is not in this world. And so because of that, we endure scorn and ridicule and hatred and mockery and a great deal of discomfort. 
Many people are going to look at the way we live as we cast aside the things of this world, as we reject the kings of this world, and we follow after Christ Jesus as Lord, and we walk in a way that is befitting of citizens of his kingdom. It's going to make the people around us very uncomfortable. You live like an alien, people are going to notice. You live like a stranger, people are going to notice. I pray that you live like a stranger and an alien. People are going to notice and they're probably not going to like it. They're going to feel as though you're burning their flag. They're going to feel as though you're assaulting their king or their queen. So it's not just being a stranger and feeling uncomfortable in this place. You very much may find yourself divided. I came not to bring peace, but the sword from even the members of your own household. But we've seen our king. We've already seen our king. We've already heard his voice. We believe the promises of God that he reigns even now, even as he provides to these very same people that assault and attack and impugn our motives. We know that he is raised on high, that he is reigning from his father's right hand. And so we rejoice in his victory. We, we gather together knowing we haven't earned our citizenship, therefore we can't lose our citizenship. Knowing that because this kingdom isn't built by us, but by God, it cannot crumble and it cannot fall apart. So we look to things that are unseen, not to the things that are seen and passing and temporal. Keep our eyes fixed on the horizon when that day comes that that which is unseen becomes seen. You realize that happens, right? That's the end of the story. The whole gospel is not about escaping the earth. Do you understand that? It's not about escaping the physical. It's not about escaping all these good gifts that God has given us. It's about the fact that Christ Jesus reigns today. And that those who are his, who live like citizens of his kingdom, even now as they're strangers, we can wait with our eyes on the horizon, knowing that when he comes back, that we will reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Your destiny is not to live in some floaty place without a body. It's to reign as kings with Christ Jesus on this earth, remade perfect and pure and glorious. Again, I go back to what I said to David Tompkins. We went to Fogo to Chow the other day. I don't know the hearts, you know, I don't know the hearts of everybody that was sitting around us. It was probably stupid of me to assume we were the only Christians in the place. But I looked at David and I said, man, we may be the only people with the true right to enjoy this meal the way we are. Because been, it's been provided by our king. He owns everything. Food and drink and relationship and, and, and money and schooling and education and all of it. He owns all of it. So we stand here as visible saints, visible citizens of the invisible kingdom saying, Christ Jesus owns all of this. You can imagine the offense that a statement like that brings. But we've seen him and we trust him and so we live like this. Beloved, this is the church. We're citizens of another country gathering in this country. Reminding each other of all the benefits of our citizenship, because out there it sure doesn't look like much at times. Reminding each other of all the benefits of citizenship, singing praises to this king who has rescued and ransomed us, getting tastes of our, of our homeland as we come to the table, being strengthened for the battles that lie ahead. But more than anything else, we come together as citizens of the kingdom and we meet with our king, a direct audience with the king. So I ask you, where do you feel at home? Do you feel at home with the company of the saints? Or do you feel at home with the rest of the world? Do you love the brethren? Do you, do you find a, a, a common citizenship with them? A common bond that can only be explained by something that God has done. Are you at home amongst the saints? Where is your hope set? Is your hope set on the passing and fleeting pleasures of this world? Or is it set on the promises of your king? The true treasures of heaven. And how do you know where your treasures are set? Where does your mind go? What consumes your thoughts? 
Is it food or drink or relationship or finance or recreation? Where does your money go? Is it food or drink or relationship or recreation? Or is your heart so bound to the kingdom of God, so devoted to your king that you're always seeking first his kingdom, trusting he has it all? Listen, if any one of you people had a rich father, like a legitimately rich father, what would you ever be concerned about? But when your king, nay, your father, owns all the silver and all the gold and all the cattle on a thousand hills, what would we ever be anxious about? We seek his kingdom, trusting that in his kingdom, we receive everything that we need. So where do you feel at home? With the saints? Or are you much more comfortable with the people of this world? Where have you set your hope? On the things of the earth or on the things of heaven? And where does your allegiance lie? With the princes of this world? Or the risen king of kings? Do you live with a constant fear of man? Do you live with a constant desire to please man, mostly yourself? Or do you devote your life to living in a way that is pleasing to your God and your king? How steady is your heart? See, the, the foundations of this world are shaking. And so if my heart is bound to this world, I'm going to be filled with anxiety and with fear. But if I've seen and believed in a city that has a greater foundation and whose builder is God, fear and anxiety and frustration all fades away. So are you living a fearful life with a steady sense of confidence, confident assurance that you belong to the kingdom of God? If the answers if the questions themselves made you uncomfortable, or if the answers to those questions, if you were truly considering them, if the answers to those questions are not what you once hoped that they were, then as we gather together, this visible outpost to the invisible kingdom, as we gather together in the presence of this king, I plead with you to cry out to him. Like the persistent widow, Like the thoughtless neighbor, you, you come and you beg and you plead and you say, God, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to leave you alone until you bind my heart to you and to your kingdom. I'm not going to stop asking. I'm not going to stop coming. I'm going to beg and I'm going to knock and I'm going to ask and I'm going to plead and I'm going to pray until the day comes that my answer to every single one of those is yes and amen. Because I'm tired of being afraid. And I'm tired of being anxious. And I'm tired of being filled with doubt. And I'm tired of wondering what you're doing in this place. I want you to break my addiction to the things of this world and bind my heart to you. You ask. You plead. You beg. And you watch what he does. If your answer to every one of those was already a hearty yes and amen then, beloved, you continue to live like you are citizens of the kingdom. More and more and more each day, you are giving yourself every bit of who you are in service to the king without any fear of real loss, without any fear of anything that can actually matter being taken away. We charge hard as a people of the kingdom. And we keep coming back to this place week after week after week. And I don't just mean Sunday morning, beloved. I mean Sunday morning. I mean Sunday night. I mean Wednesday night. I mean every single time the doors are open, the citizens of the kingdom say, get me to that place where we can meet with our king. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for this beautiful picture that you have given us. Father, we recognize that there are no natural-born citizens into your kingdom. That with Adam, that was all broken. And yet, Father, you have purchased and won and redeemed us out of the kingdom of darkness and into this marvelous kingdom of light. So, Father, I pray that you would help us. Those who have not yet been transferred, Father, would you do it? 
It said in Hebrews 11 that they had a desire, a longing, a looking for a greater land. Father, those that have not yet seen it, give them a glimpse, just, just an image, just a taste of that city to come. Bind their hearts to it. Help us all to grow in our love for that land, to long for it with all that we have and all that we are. God, again, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.